intrigued by your mind I'm intrigued by your looks I'm intrigued and beguiled I got and read all your books Welcome to a new episode of Mind the Future. On this show, I talk to fascinating guests from the worlds of art, science, and technology about the future of what they love and do. If you haven't subscribed yet or shared with a friend, consider this your official invitation. Today, I am chatting with Sam Sarkisian, a lecturer in the writing program at Boston University and author of The Institute, which is a dystopian thriller about misinformation in the media and political spheres. Sounds familiar? Well, with the U.S. plagued by disinformation in the media, in the books world, the answer seems to be a nonpartisan institute for information dissemination meant to compile and fact-check the media and political sphere so that citizens will only get the most accurate information. Sounds pretty good, right? Uh, well, of course, there is a hiccup or there would be no novel. Turns out that some at the Institute may have their own agenda. The Institute explores the corruption and greed that drives many of the biggest institutions, most notably the United States government. My guest, that would be Sam, has a rather eclectic background in communications. He has worked as a freelance photojournalist, a multimedia editor, grant and policy writer, and in the press office of former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick. He's also the director of publishing at Launch Team Press. We're going to be talking a bit about his book, the issues we're facing in journalism, which there's lots of, and most importantly, how we can move forward. Thank you so much for joining me on Mind the Future. It's great to have you, Sam. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Looking forward to it. Wonderful. So, you know, you clearly care about the misinformation issues around journalism, but also similarly disinformation. And I would say so much so that you've wrote a dystopian novel about it called The Institute. So I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about the book and also in particular, what inspired you to write it? All right, let's get down to it. Yeah. So the book's called The Institute. It, I didn't set out to write it as dystopian fiction, it kind of fell into my lap in that way. But, you know, I, I began writing it in late 2016, uh, going into 2017, right after President Trump got elected. And it wasn't, it has nothing to do, it's not a political novel in any way, but I was overwhelmed by how much I was hearing that People no longer trusted the news. It got to the point where information overload became such a factor in folks' mindsets that they became apathetic towards the news and no longer wanted anything to do with it. And I feel I felt so strongly that it would break down any sense of uh, the foundation of democracy in general. Right. So that's, that, that's where I got the inspiration for the book. I should probably tell you a little bit about the book. You though, probably Catherine. should. Yes. Yeah. So it's set in 2035 and the premise is what might happen if Congress 
demanded or if Congress responded to the citizens demanding that the government act against misinformation, right? There are consequences for politicians, for media outlets when they intentionally spread misinformation, right? And they can get shut down. There is, it's a, it's a new government agency called the Institute for Information Dissemination. And that's, that's pretty much the premise of the book. That's where it starts. And yeah. Well, it's like most things that where people sort of demand and, and there is some kind of a noble reason for it or, you know, they're trying to do good and it has terrible consequences. You know, there's definitely, you know, fake news is something that a lot of people talk about, but more so, you know, disinformation, uh, poor reporting, the way that, you know, social media carries news. And you really definitely seem to recognize that there is a problem in the regards to that. But what's interesting is that, you know, when you look at a solution that we might try to implement, that solution can cause further damage. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, so it's not necessarily a cautionary tale, but it does start from the ideal, right? There's this populist candidate named Secretary Sherman, uh, who is a, he is a congressman before he heads this Institute for Information Dissemination. And he's a single party candidate, right? He's a single horse so driving one trail here. And he taps in to the grave discontent that the public has distrusting the news with misinformation. And that's how he catapults himself to the top and eventually can create this institute. Yeah, and it seems like he has these good intentions. I'm also quite surprised that, you know, I guess that the public in this world cares enough about misinformation that they would actually vote him in kind of based on that because he's he's not really affiliated in your book with one party or the other uh, so he's an independent candidate who's sort of speaking to some larger truth of, of what society is looking for again good intentions leading to something that maybe doesn't have such good consequences yeah and he's he's a he's a pretty complicated character he's silver-tongued but he does, in, in my mind anyway, does have those good intentions. He truly does want to revamp how Americans can retrust the news and the information that they're getting. But everything goes to the wayside within the bureaucracy of the consumer news culture. And, you know, I don't want to give too much away from the book, but there isn't an easy solution is pretty much what inspired me to write it in the first place. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, it sounds like whenever governments or bureaucracies start to take over, it tends to be highly problematic, but I'm wondering, how do you feel about the idea of the media regulating itself? Do you, do you see some sort of independent body emerging in the future that, you know, regulates all media, but, you know, as a coalition of all these media outlets, perhaps? I think those exist in essence, but they don't have the power to make any significant change. With information overload in general and just how the internet has allowed us to have anything and everything at our fingertips to the point where 
we're only reading headlines or, and I don't want to speak in generalizations or we're, we're, we're just unsure of, of media literacy and how to actually assess the news. I do think it's a possibility, but I, there are so many problems with having even a coalition that's assessing credibility because it becomes a circular argument, Catherine, right? Where it's like, who are they? Who's this new organization to judge, right? Sure. What, what biases might they hold? Who's actually running it? We tend to catapult ourselves to this intense mental framework of skepticism where we're just running in circles. Right. I mean, I've been thinking about this this challenge a lot, and it seems like one of the solutions that I think is is kind of important to look at is media literacy in schools in particular, in high schools, and even before that, where, you know, students are taught the skills of how to discern which media outlets to be trusted, which stories, what questions to ask when they're reading something. And I think that inherently could change the nature of how reporting is done, or at the very least, how the consumer receives um, that media. I'm just wondering what thoughts you might have on that. I think it's more important than ever. Certainly, part of the reason that so many folks distrust the news, at least from my experience, I'm speaking in a generalization, but it's usually older folks who don't know which news outlets to trust and why. And I think that's a symptom of when they were growing up, they didn't have this hyper-stimulation from access right on the internet and being able to see eight different news outlets covering from eight different angles but acknowledging what this reporting methods are actually like what a day-to-day journalist looks like what their intents are and how to determine whether someone is reliable or not i think should be taught since you know the second grade yeah, uh, we we uh, I bring up bias, and I also am a professor at Boston University, and I teach journalism. It's obscene to me. It's disheartening that so many of my students have little skill to determine what makes bias language and what doesn't. And I love teaching it, but the fact that there's no no beginning, right? They 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 have not they've never experienced any content like that before and there's no baseline it is almost baffling right we we need that we need it yeah no we we do and i think um giving people tools is so so important and i and like you said yes maybe this as early as the second grade i think with younger generations they seem quite disinterested in the news. And I mean, they, they do care about what's going on, but there is a tendency to get, you know, to just look at headlines or get the information from their parents or, you know, like TikTok and social media. And very rarely do they actually read these, um, these actual publications or, or watch the news. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of um, TV news to be perfectly honest, because I think it, 
tends to lack nuance just by the nature of it uh, because of the format. And I mean, we need to understand we as in the media, right? And the media are, not the media is. The media mm-hmm. is just such such a complete, complicated ecosystem in itself. But acknowledging shorter attention spans, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? We're just more alert to what is possibly around us. It's, it's a hard problem to tackle, right? It, w- w- the lo- longer form journalism tends to be the most reliable because it can be the most in-depth. It can have the most investigation, but at the same time, it makes folks disinterested. Everything is a click away, Catherine, right? I mean, it's, it's, if, if you don't entice them, entertain and inform all at the same time, it's so easy to lose the audience. And that's a problem because I think we're, we've been really heading into this dangerous direction of infotainment. And now I think news or feature stories, they should be interesting. And in that way, perhaps they're entertaining. But, you know, I think it should be more about, curio- you know, curiosity driven. But what is, seems to have happened, and I think the internet in large is, is a big part of it, the shrinking attention to spans. People are not u- used to reading long form, although I am seeing a little bit of a renaissance of, of, of long form that's, that's encouraging. But I think it's really difficult in short form to really convey the important layers of a story, especially when covering more complicated issues. And so I think that causes a great harm to the discourse in society. And so I'm wondering, you know, and and that's like a financial aspect to it. And it's that infotainment aspect to it. Do you think there is a possibility of, of a new model that might tackle that issue. And I know a lot of people are excited about the idea of decentralized media, though I'm, I'm not quite sure how that would look exactly, but I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Hmm. That is a very complex question. <laughs> you so, might have I mean, to write a 1500 word article about it. I was going to say maybe an entire book that's nonfiction. Rather than also that, yes. <laughs> But, you know, news is known for having a very strong dedication to structure, right? We know this, the inverted pyramid. Not everybody knows this. Uh, I wish they did. But, right, where the goal of news is to give the most laconic, right, saying the most in few words, the most amount of information in the fewest words possible. And it is structured so that the most significant to the audience, the most significant information to the audience is said first right but it's tough when we're trying to tackle this infotainment problem that that you put up right so there are ways to do it should we start with a narrative about a a relatable person for a hard news story that that loses the essence of why people are reading the news in the first place. Right. We we're reading it for this awareness instinct. I, I think maybe resonating that idea 
further could be really important to audiences. Like, why do we read the news, right? Uh, we're getting so caught up in the fact that, you know, news can be sensational or it's, it's super biased. But like, why is news an industry in the first place? It's an industry so that we can function and survive in a society. Think about it, right? It's what's over the next hill. This basic awareness instinct has been around forever because we want to know if there's any type of impending danger around us. And because of information overload and because we have so many different possibilities to read different coverage on the same exact event, we're getting so caught up in the emotional response that we're forgetting the purpose of news in the first place. So to answer your question, I don't have a solution in terms of how I, of what the news story structure should do, but I'm, I know why it exists the way it does. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've had some conversations with people who seem to be under the impression just about anybody can be a journalist now. And they say, well, the time of the journalist is over. Um, there's quite a bit of hate for journalists. <laughs> and in some ways, it's true that just about anybody can have a platform now, right? But how, you know, and I don't agree with them, by the way, <laughs> but I'm just wondering from your point of view, how is the work that an actual trained journalist do, does different from, you know, somebody who just has an expertise perhaps in a particular area would approach things? Yeah, so I have, a, I have a few thoughts on that. So journalists are dilettantes by definition, right? It's one of my favorite quotes. can't remember the author's name right now, so mm. I might be plagiarizing. But journalists are dilettantes by definition. Their job is to quite literally determine what's important and synthesize it to other people. And citizens, too, another quote I'm quoting again, citizens, too, have rights and responsibilities when it comes to the news. That's by Bill Kovac and Tom Rosenstiel. But journalism is a trade, right? You can't be a dilettante without at least having some type of, of knowledge on on anything that you're covering. Journalists, ideally, anyway, are very trained to sift through which information matters to their audience and which information, which pieces of information don't. So when consumers, when regular people have problems with the news of, of being so biased and being so sensational, right? I feel that citizen journalists, if we want to call them that, are, That's at a good name. A, are at such a higher risk for doing that. They're, they're quite literally covering it only from their experience and, and not necessarily doing due diligence to determine the validity of the source. And it's, it's a conflagration, right? It's a, it's a fire that keeps getting bigger and bigger because they don't recognize that the perspective they're bringing is so pigeonholed while it could be important information it is actually exponentializing the problem that they have with journalism itself. If that right. answers. Yeah. Well, and you know, quite a few people would suggest that, you know, one of the things that bothers them about journalism or journalists in particular is, is that bias that they're seeing and, you know, whichever way that happens to land. And so I'm wondering, how can journalists do a better job at avoiding 
falling into that trap? How can the news or the reporting that they do be more valuable to the community that they're serving? There are a few ways, and I'm not the complete expert on this necessarily, but in in the ways that I think, so journalists can be transparent about their biases, of course, right? That is just a blanket statement. But I, I really feel like education for what journalists are trying to do is, is of the utmost importance. A lot of the times folks confuse that objectivity is only in tone or it's only, they forget that object, true objectivity comes from approach. It comes from who you're talking to, how you're assessing the validity of their information and how you're structuring the importance of that information in where it appears in the news story, right? So I think most journalists, maybe I'm in, in an ideal world and I'm dreaming right now, but I'd like to think that most journalists try very hard to be objective in their reporting methods, right? Having a faux objectivity where you mask your tone with neutrality when you're actually covering something completely biased, right? You're only talking to one side is the bane of good journalism to me. It's what makes bad journalism. I was reading a story, Catherine, the other day and I, I don't want to talk about this content, but it was when Caitlyn Jenner said that, you know, trans women, so men who, you know, have, have transitioned into women, I'm sorry if I misspoke there, mm-hmm. shouldn't compete in sports, uh, in women's sports, right? And that's an entirely different conversation but I was reading an NBC news story and I was surprised that it was NBC a, a little bit. I know they, they lean to the, to the left, but they were cherry picking and the quotes out of context and forgetting the authority of the source. They were focusing more on the fact it, it was sensational uh, on, on folks reactions to what, she was saying what Caitlyn Jenner was saying rather than doing due diligence and investigating why she might be saying that in the first place and explaining in conjunction with reactions, because those sources are important, of course, in conjunction with those reactions to explain the significance. Folks not asking. Oh, sorry, Catherine, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I find that folks mistake news. The purpose of news as simply informing when the true purpose of news is to explain the significance of events. I like that where, formulation. Yes. That's where we get confused as if like, what is objectivity? Can we be objective? It's like the journalist is a person you need to trust that they did their research. And if they didn't, it should be apparent. Right. But they need to explain why it's important to us as well. Otherwise, are we just going to get facts? Sheets with quotes, right? That's that's what true objectivity is. Mm-hmm. So, 
So asking the right questions essentially is is a really important part of it because you were asking questions that dig into the deeper meanings of things. So, and you know, what, what value is it presenting to the reader? If, for example, in that story, it would be much more interesting to understand why Caitlyn Jenner said what she did, what were, what were her thoughts about that, where she was coming from, than what the reactions were from other people, which maybe is not as uh, valuable, perhaps, um, as that question. I agree with that. And it's not that the reactions aren't valuable. Yeah. Right? They certainly are. They're part of the story. We call it a news story for a reason. We live stories. Yeah. Right. That's that's the point. But but even it, who you get those reactions from and how many reactions that all plays a, a role in it, too, because that could also create a particular perception. Um, so I think, you know, it's very important to kind of system. I mean, when I was working with editors years ago, you know, when they actually edited pieces <laughs> and not just printed things word for word, um, I mean, some editors still do a great job, um, just a disclaimer, but I, you know, the, the really good editors that I worked with, they were really good at asking me questions that allowed me to hone in into things more. And they wouldn't just let me get away with just putting some kind of a generalization in. So they were like, fact-based questions. They were questions about relevancy. Um, and they pushed me further to explore the story rather than just tell it, if that makes sense. And it does make sense. It, I, I feel like that's a symptom of the shortened news cycle that we have with, with accessibility at our fingertips. The news is going to be a consumer business by, by trade, by nature. It just has to be. They're I don't see a different solution to that. And folks tend to be really combative when I say that. It's like, well, money is just going to F it up, right? For, for lack of a better term. It's like, yes, money does mess a lot of things up, but there's no way that we can train and hire good journalists if there's no money in that industry. So it, we're caught at a crossroads here where the necessity for hyperspeed information and being the first person to cover a story is paramount. And we're forgetting that it's okay for journalists to amend their story. That doesn't mean that they're unreliable. In fact, it means that they're more reliable because they're doing the due diligence to edit the story. Do I wish, Catherine, that it were, and I'm not very old, right? But in the olden days, right, where, where editors would be a little bit more scrutinizing? Sure. And do I think that some editors are super scrutinizing? Yes, I certainly do. Um, I think a lot of it is on the consumer at this point. If, if, uh, In what way? If that makes sense. In what way do you think it's on the consumer? I think a lot of gripes against journalism are ignored by the consumer when they're making it not worse, but they're adding fuel to the fire. I think a lot of folks have such high expectations of journalists, but they don't recognize when they're spreading misinformation to such an extent that it gets so muddled and clouded that we're just 
trying to sift through the muck. Right. And there's no incentive really for a lot of media outlets to invest in high quality journalism because the clickbait sort of style of journalism, uh, you know, makes often more money to the publication than a really well-researched in-depth story that costs a lot more money to create. So that I think is, is also a very central problem to, to, to the, <laughs> to journalism. I agree where money that. would help, right? <laughs> money would definitely help in that situation. Um, you know, more maybe a more independent kind of independently fueled. I think I think there's like a money making model in journalism that, from my understanding, because I'm also not that old, but um, you know, there was a lot of more of a money losing kind of model. Um, in in a lot of institutions where really was a public service, especially with something like TV news. And now it's really where they're making money. So that changes the whole model. And again, if if it costs you less money to produce shoddy journalism that gets more eyeballs and therefore more, more of a revenue, you don't really have an incentive to then produce good journalism and, and pay more for that. Yeah, yeah. And what's most ironic about it, Catherine, is objectivity was born out of the consumer business news model to begin with. <laughs> like once once the penny presses started in New York, this is way back in the 1830s and 40s, and I'm not going to give it. Yeah, when you were this. just a young man, yeah. <laughs> but when I was just a young lad, you know, as a newsie screaming on the streets. <laughs> but But that's where objectivity came from because – folks were tired of the partisan press and the only way to reach a broader audience was to cover it from many angles. And now we have so many angles and so many possibilities that that's becoming convoluted. So it's, it's an impossible problem to solve at the moment. I I wish I had a better, clearer answer for you. Um, But the context helps anyway. Maybe one day we'll figure it out. Well, since this is, uh, you know, this podcast is really focused on the future of things, let's talk a little bit about AI. (laughs) So do you think AI can ever replace human journalists? There certainly have been some attempts. They're not um, really strong just yet. But, you know, there is some reporting already going on by AI. And, um, you know, one thing that would be an argument for AI is that potentially it can be programmed to be more methodical and potentially have less bias and more objectivity, though it's only going to be programmed as well as humans can do that. Um, So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And also, you know, can it be a tool that journalists use in the future, perhaps for their own work? No, is my short answer to (laughs) do I think that AI will ever be able to replace journalism? And my reasoning is somewhat simple. It is a story and it's impossible to for an AI to get the in-depth investigation to explain the significance of the events. Do I think that it could be a useful tool to compile all of those different sources quoting the same topic so that 
people, journalists can sift through it to have more accessibility at their fingertips rather than just their own network. Like, yes, I think that can be a useful and important idea or reality that, that will pursue. But also I just, I haven't yet seen, and this is more from the writing standpoint than a journalism practice standpoint, but you can't mimic the tone of a language easily and language evolves so much and the connotations and denotations that folks understand from their experience changes so rapidly. I would never trust a programmer to be able to teach a computer to do that at this moment. While we may be imperfect at it as humans, right? Our brains are the supercomputers that we're writing from. It's, it's a long way off for me. It's a long mm -hmm. way off. Yeah. I mean, perhaps, um, I do see it. I mean, there were some interesting conversations around how AI might be used in the court system to potentially create more fair outcomes, but then also there's all these issues with the algorithm. And so it made me kind of think about, okay, maybe it could be used to analyze a journalist story once it's been written to see what might be missing, what might be disbalanced, you know, things like that. But I, I it probably is a little while while's off, but I mean, we are exploring the future. So it'd be interesting to see how that develops. Yeah. I just, I am cautioned or I want to caution for whatever it's worth diving into that too soon. I, I think putting research and practical applications of it and being upfront about it and having a scrutinizing panel of people, you know, professional journalists to, di to discover what the uses could be, would be a great first step. And because of the limitless number of perspectives from globalization and from the internet in general, it could be really interesting. It could be something that reinvigorates the public's trust in the media. So I, I definitely see some light there. Yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, it depends on how we use the technology we've got. We often don't think through the consequences and that's that's the problem because sometimes it's it becomes too late as we've seen with things like social media. Um, what, you know, we talked a little bit about what journalists and journalism institutions could potentially do to improve things a bit, but, you know, what can readers do on their part? How can they empower themselves? Mm. There's so much skepticism that it's hard for me to answer that question, hmm. but it's, it goes back to media literacy from earlier in the conversation what has this journalist, you know, in quotes, published before? Where, where are they published? What's the reputation of this news outlet, not only in your own sphere, right? Understanding that if you're getting most of your news from social media, and I do too, it's, it's, it's where I follow a lot of the major news outlets that I read. 
what are the inherent biases of this editorial board, right? Uh, what What's their history? Who are they talking to? How are they framing the conversation? Are they typically only putting left-wing sources at the top? Are they only typically putting right-wing sources at the top? Are they masking an analysis of an event with actual coverage of the event? Right. Be really careful of where you're spending a lot of your time. I'm so I, I'm not super liberal, but I definitely ascribe to the left. Right. But I'm not only reading The Washington Post. Right. I'm not only reading The New York Times. The New York Times is the central left. They're leaning more left. But, mm-hmm. you know, I also am reading The Wall Street Journal and I'm also even reading stuff on the far, far right, like Breitbart, because I want to see how they're covering these problems and and who they're talking to. And if they are approaching it from an objective reporting standpoint, or if they're only looking to sensationalize a topic, it's not that there isn't a place for that. It's not that there isn't a place for news analysis and commentary that's super important. It's current events. We want to know what folks in the media industry think about it. But if they're masking it as news, just straight up hard news, then that makes it unreliable to me. And I and I want readers to try to scrutinize it like that a little bit more. Like, even if you hate something, you, you hate how something is covered, okay, analyze why don't you like it? What's wrong with it? Do you not like the opinion or do you not like how they're going about it? Are they masking an opinion in fact? Because regardless of what side that's on, that's wrong. That's not what news is for. So just really taking a big bite out of what you're reading and taking the time to digest why you're consuming it in the first place. Right. And, and those are really great points. I would also add that, you know, especially in broadcast news, both the right and the left have this tendency to do this thing where they'll have a couple of people and whatever their side is, and they'll bring one person from a different perspective, but often they'll bring in a person who's not a very strong, not, not necessarily the smartest person. And I think it's so, so important for, in order to have really interesting, nuanced perspectives is like you bring the smartest person who disagrees with you in. And so often that's not what happens. Most of the time, that's not what happens. And then I would also say looking at the primary sources as much as possible is is key. Um, I completely agree that you want to be looking at as many points of views on something. Like you take one issue or one event that happens and and read as much as you can from different points of views that will give you a much clearer picture. And then on top of it, you know, make sure that um, that is something that you also, um, I I may have lost my track of thought there, but yeah. (laughs) I I think too, like what, what types of questions are they asking? Right. Right. When, when they do bring in that source, are they asking a leading question where they're only looking to respond? Because that's not news. That's commentary, and that's fine. It's not that we can't have that. 
But so much broadcast has devolved into that without being straightforward that that's their intent. That's where people are getting upset. That's where people are getting angry because they disagree. They're like, why would somebody cover it like this? It's like, but are you scrutinizing how this interviewer is trying to cover it? What's their MO? What is their angle, right? News angle is something that is ever elusive to people, right? It's what's going to be significant to my audience and, and how can I show it to them? And there are problems inherently with that because, of course, if your audience is looking for incendiary content, you're going to give it to them. Right. right? And you're going to probably omit a lot of information. I think it's just as important to look at what's missing as it is what's in the story because, and often things are taken a little bit out of context. Like maybe a quote is grabbed. I mean, I've seen so many examples of this where I would go to the original video and then you realize that's, you know, what's actually happening is, is completely, completely different from how it's being presented. And I think that does such a disservice, but it happens all the time. In fact, I, I, you know, I came across something like this this morning um, where it was completely taken out of context, presented as, as, it, as if it were neutral fact when it was not that at all. Um, and, and so I think, and if you go to the, you know, if you look deeper in, into it, you realize, but most people don't do it because it's, they want to just confirm their own biases. So I think it's important to explore these things. Yeah. And there are three. So, uh, this guy, oh man, that's, I can't remember his name. Uh, Pierre Villar. <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to go my professor background for a second. He, he, <laughs> He has this theory that there are three ways that journalists can function in, in how they are portraying news in terms of tone to the, to the public and, and the reporting methods. So there's blind objectivity, which is essentially a journalist prescribing to the ideal that objectivity can actually exist when they're a human and their, their inherent biases are, are going to, to seep into it. When that goes in everything from tone and delivery to, to the source that they talk to. Right. And then number two is there is a dishonest objectivity where the journalist understands that objectivity is an ideal and it's impossible to achieve, but they're masking their tone and delivery to cater to that journalistic standard and requirement. Mm -hmm. Right. And then there is what he calls the honest attitude where a journalist understands their limitations and is transparent about it and not only is transparent about their biases, but also of the limitations of their reporting. And I think that journalists do this a lot more often than folks give them credit for. When, when a source is inaccessible, many journalists will say that in a story, right? But folks still rag on them, right? Still criticize them for not giving that desired information. Right. And, and, and that's a big problem. Well, and sometimes the source just doesn't trust them enough to talk to them. So there is that. <laughs> where, you know, where do you see journalism going, you know, tw 10, 20 years now? What, what do you think we can expect? Do you think print is going to survive? Do you think, you know, wh what's in your imagination? What do you think it will look like? Well, I hope it doesn't turn out with how the Institute, my book, 
turns out <laughs> I don't want a government agency reigning, reigning over it. Um, that essentially is like FBI and, uh, the, uh, the journalism industry on steroids, just like snooping and everything we're doing and rating it all. What, what do I think might happen? I mean, journalists need to be able to cater to this multimodal environment, right? And w- without saying it in academic terms, we need to be able to figure out how to be concise, how to be laconic, and give all of these perspectives at the same time. I, I don't think print is necessarily going to die. It's important. Longer form journalism is super important. Uh, but look at what we're doing right now, right? We're having a podcast. It's a it's a different medium. And 20 years ago, that wouldn't have been a thing unless we were on a live radio show. It's it's being able to present the content in concentrated bites through different mediums, right? So not only is there going to be text and print, but there will be photos and videos and not exclusive content, but in-depth content all on the same story. That's what I think people are looking for, right? Because one, one of the problems with clickbait headlines is it's to entice the reader and then, and then maybe the story isn't even about that, or it's just sensational to get somebody pissed. They're like, oh, I can't believe that happened. And then they, you know, posted a million times on Facebook. Right. Right. So, so to have that multifaceted approach, which I think journalism really is trying hard to do, but to integrate it into the same coverage, I think may re-foster, right, regain some trust from the public and satisfy that entertainment stimulation aspect that is just ever-present right now. Right. Well, there's a question that I ask everyone who comes on to the podcast, and that is, what is it that you're looking forward to most about the future? And it doesn't have to be journalism. It can be anything you want it to be. But what's the thing you're most excited about in the future? Laying a, a bomb on me here, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. it kind of brings me a little bit back to, so we met on Clubhouse, right? The audio app. Yes. And the ex- accessibility for organic connection is what I'm looking forward to most, right? Because in the beginning of the internet age, if you will, chat rooms, and it was so, it seemed so robotic and so difficult to truly foster a connection with somebody uh, through the internet solely. To truly be able to understand people and forge friendships and get to know people for real. I think the internet is trying to solve that problem, right? Because Instagram is very surface level. It's like, oh, look at me. You know, I'm on vacation. Don't you think I'm cool? Right? Or buy my product. But the ability to truly get to know somebody when you're not in their presence is slowly becoming broken down. And I'm hoping that it gives folks confidence in what they don't know and what they don't know about others. And so that's what I'm looking forward to in the future is that I think that's, you know, right at our grasp. It's right at our fingertips. And 
hopefully we can bring some humanity to um, hyperconnectivity. I absolutely hope that too. And, and I hope, you know, technology has done quite a lot to also alienate us, but I also think it has immense potential to bring us together and, and bring a lot of diversity of thought and, and hum, humans together in a way that might tackle some problems, or at the very least, we can learn from each other, which is just as valuable. Um, you know, I really appreciate chatting with you. Um, wondering how can listeners find you? Yeah, it was great chatting with you too, Catherine. Um, I'm glad for our, you know, collaborations in the future too. <laughs> how can how can you find me? <laughs> so my name is Sam Sarkeesian again. I, I have a Google knowledge panel apparently now, so you can Google me. <laughs> It'll give you, give you my book. Um, but the Institute is available on, on Amazon. Um, it's also available on Barnes and Noble. Uh, if you search Sam Sarkeesian, the Institute, you can, you can find that dystopian novel. Uh, you can, I, I try really hard to respond to my messages on Instagram. So you can, you can find me there. I'm, Technology is at our fingertips, and I, I, I try to cater to that because I do want to meet those people. I, I do want to hear what folks have to say. Uh, no message is going to be ignored necessarily, especially if it's about the book. I, I love hearing people, even if you hate it, right? You can hate it. I want haters, right? So, so you know. I'll email you about that later, Sam. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give me some hate mail. But um, yeah, so Sam Sarkeesian, the Institute, you can just Google it or put it on Amazon. And um, if you follow me on Instagram or you just send me a message, you have a question about anything, I'm, uh, I'm happy to answer. So that's where you can find me. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much. It's been great chatting. And I am, I, I think I, I call myself a, a positive, no, a pessimistic, po- what was it? A positive pessimist. <laughs> that's that's what I call myself so I I am trying to be I'm realistic slightly pessimistic but I have great hopes for the future at the same time well that's beautiful let's uh go hand in hand love it love it thank you so much again for joining me yeah thanks Catherine thank you